You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. Our Bible reading passage comes from Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, and it can be found at page 747. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, hill of my God, before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. You may be seated. I love expository preaching when I'm forced to deal with the next passage, but sometimes I don't because then I'm forced to deal with a passage I would rather avoid. And Daniel chapter 9 is one of those passages. I'm like, this would be so much easier if we just skipped over it, like other pastors do, um, with wisdom, I think. Uh, And so I'm not going to skip over it. Um, We started last week uh, in Daniel chapter 9, and I promised you we'll we'll get to the most difficult part of Daniel chapter 9, and today is the day that we do that. Here's what I want to say at the very beginning, before I even get into it. 
Uh, you may leave here more confused. You may leave here frustrated. Why doesn't Pastor Keith share my view of Daniel chapter 9? Um, or you might be like, well, why does it matter? I, I don't know. Here, here's what I want to share with you. When it comes to passages like this, I think there is wisdom in holding a passage like this in terms of your understanding of it with an open hand that God may change your view of it somewhere down the road, which he has done with me. Um, and so I just, I'm holding it with an open hand and I'm going to do my best to help you see what I'm seeing here. And my goal for you is the same goal I have for my own heart is that we see the splendor and beauty and majesty of the God of the Bible and his son Jesus through this text, who I am confident is all, it's all about Jesus. And so um, we're going to do that. Here are a few quotes I came across about uh, this passage. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 is, um, according to one theologian, the prophetic message that Gabriel brought from the throne of God to Daniel is perhaps the most important, not only in the book of Daniel, but in the whole Bible. Uh, I, I don't think that's too far from being an overstatement, but it might be. Um, but it's, it's a strong statement. Commentators have said of this passage that, I, that I've read, uh, the commentators that I've read, one of them said, the key that Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, um, is the key to prophetic interpretation. Others have called it the backbone of prophecy. I don't think that's an overstatement. I think that there's some truth to that. And then Jerome, the early church father, who I really, I like this quote a lot um, because it kind of resonates with where I'm at right now. Uh, because it is unsafe to pass judgment on the opinions of the great teachers of the church and to set one above the other, I shall simply repeat the view of each and leave it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. And then he listed nine different views of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, I am not going to do that, so don't worry. Um, I'm going to give you four views really quick, and I'm just going to share with you where I land on this passage. And then at the end, towards the end of my message, my goal is to encourage you. I want you to walk out of here seeing why Daniel chapter 9 matters, and so that is my, that's my intent. I just ask that you track along with me um, as, we, as we get there. So four major views of Daniel chapter 9, really quick. Uh, the first view is uh, that the 70 weeks are literal years that run from either 605 or 586 B.C. to the reign of Antiochus IV, who was a, a major player in God's redemptive scale. He was a bad dude. Check out my sermon, I think it was on Daniel chapter 7, where I talked about him. Um, a lot of critical, a lot of uh, liberal scholars side with that because they don't think Daniel... Um, they think Daniel was written sometime around Antiochus or after Antiochus. And so that's called the critical scholarship view. View number two. Here, here's where we get into the whole evangelical Bible-believing spectrum. View number two. The 70 weeks are symbolic periods of time that begin with the reign of the Persian king Cyrus to Jesus as the king of kings. This is called the historical messianic view. View number three. The 70 weeks start with Cyrus and culminate to the life of Jesus, but the only difference is that the 70th week also includes the second coming of Christ and the defeat of both the Antichrist and Satan. This is called the symbolic view. Uh, so they don't look at these 70 weeks as literal years, um, was it 490 years, they look at it as kind of some symbolic of a time that is here and is coming. And then there's view number four. This is where I used to camp. So I'm, I'm just showing you my cards right now. 
This is where I used to camp. This is where, um, and I think, I'm sure he would let me say this. I, mean, I don't think he would mind me saying this because I listened to some of his sermons. This is where the lead pastor at Cheyenne Hills camps presently. This is where I used to be. I'm no longer there. And so just to kind of share with you that they, you can have two Bible-believing, gospel-centered, God-fearing pastors who don't agree on, uh, on this passage, okay? And that is, it's called the dispensational or the future fulfillment view. And basically, the la the, the, they understand these 490 years to be literal years, these 70 weeks to be literal years with a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And there's this huge gap, and the 70th week is seven literal years, and in that seven literal years, all of that is about an antichrist who makes a strong covenant with the people of Israel. He, he destroys the city, decimates the temple, and then Jesus comes. I no longer hold to that view. I think the seventh week is all about Jesus, not the antichrist. And so I shared my cards. Now you've got to listen, okay? Um, and follow along in your Bible. You don't have to agree with me. Just follow along. Um, the purpose... This just me working through this passage. The purpose of the 70 weeks, I said this last week, is that the saints of the Most High, according to Daniel chapter 7, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom of God and possess it forever, forever, and ever. That's the goal of the 70 weeks. God is moving all of history to this redemptive climax where he will make all things new, redemption will be complete, and uh, he'll balance the scales in, in, of, of, of justice. Jesus will be king, the earth will be resurrected, so will God's people, and it will be awesome. Like, all of that is moving to that historic future event. And Daniel chapter, chapter 9, these 70 weeks, is God's answer to Daniel that this is how he's going to get us there. At least this will be the way that he does it. And, um, and so the way that God will do this is by first, if you look, and if you have a Bible, it's good just to follow along. Um, we're told in verse 24, which I believe is a summary statement of verses 25 through 27, that the 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Remember last week I said, to finish the transgression, that's talking about Israel's exile. Why are they in exile? Because they are jacked up, and they kept sinning over and over and over again. God kept warning them through his prophets, if you keep this up, I'm going to discipline you, and that discipline will be in the form of an exile. Daniel was then reading his Bible in, Jan in, in Jeremiah chapter 25, and when he came across Jeremiah 25, he read about Jeremiah's prophetic statement that at the end of the 70 years of exile, God will lead his people back into the land that they were kicked out of. So Daniel read that, and that's what encouraged Daniel to pray, Lord, have mercy on us, please forgive us of our sins, and on and on you know, it, it goes. So um, it goes on, and then to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit. I said last week, that's God sealing his word onto our hearts. And to anoint the, a most holy place. I believe that is new heaven, new earth. And, um, and if, you, if you follow along, I think it will be worth it towards the end of this message for you to just follow along. All right, so, um, so Daniel uh, answers Daniel's prayer and says, response to his prayer 
In Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel answers Daniel's prayer and says, this is, I think God is telling Daniel, this is how I'm going to um, lavish out my mercy upon people who don't deserve it. This is how I'm going to put an end to sin. This is how I'm going to atone for iniquity. This is how I am going to seal my word upon the hearts of my people. This is how I'm going to anoint a most holy place. And, um, you know, sometimes I think, like, in the, for example, the NIV gets the Old Testament right uh, a lot of times. Uh, better, I think. The translation is better sometimes than the ESV. And um, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, in the NIV, it says, Know and understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, meaning that's the span of the 70 weeks, the ruler, that's the Messiah, comes, there will be seven sevens and 72 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and trench, and, uh, but in times of trouble. That's, all this is happening within the 70 weeks. So what happens? What do I think happened in the 70 weeks? Um, well, Jerusalem, or Israel, uh, a remnant of Israel was allowed to go enter back into Jerusalem. I said this last week. The, the walls around Jerusalem were rebuilt by Nehemiah. The temple was rebuilt by um, Ezra. And a lot of things were happening during that time. Why? Because God was making it possible for the line of the kings to continue so that the Messiah would one day be born. All that happened in the, in the first seven weeks of, of Daniel, 70 weeks. Then you have these 62 weeks. What, happens during, what happened during those 62 weeks? Well, you had the rise of the empire of Greece. And what happened with, with the empire of Greece? The known world was Hellenized, which included that people were uh, basically forced to, to speak a common language. And so by the time the Roman Empire comes onto the scene, and the end of the empire of Greece kind of dissolves or whatever, uh, people spoke a common language, and you had the empire of Rome who developed a road system that enabled travel. So then at the end, of, or somewhere around the end of the 62 weeks, or in that, between the 62 weeks and the, or the 69th week and the 70th week, somewhere in there, Jesus was born. Jesus was born, and... Um, and why is that significant? Because you had a world that had a road system and a language that enabled the news of his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection to be proclaimed to the known world. That happens within the 62 weeks. After, you know, we'll, we'll, yeah, anyway, I'm moving on. And then so the seventh week, that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my time. And I might make some of you unhappy, and maybe some of you will be happy, who knows. Um, so here we go. I believe that um, the most climactic of the 70 weeks is the 70th week. And it began around, somewhere around 27 AD. Um, that's not a hard number. That's me holding that loosely. But it, happened, it began when I believe, and I said this last week, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and then this voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus went into the wilderness, and what happened in the wilderness? He was tempted for how many days? Forty days. How many years was Israel in the wilderness sinning against God? 
40 years. Okay, there's a, there's a reason why Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted to, to show and to demonstrate that he is perfect Israel, that he is the perfect Israelite, that he is the perfect human being, that he is the perfectly, uh, he's the one who is faithful perfectly to, to God. And so he does that. He comes out of the wilderness experience, and then he enters right into Nazareth. And what does he do? He enters into a synagogue, and he says, uh, he reads Isaiah 61, which we don't have time to get into today. That was last week's sermon. He reads it, the first two verses, and then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, sits down, and he says, today the, this word has been fulfilled, or the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, what scripture? The scripture that the blind will see, the lame will walk, the, you know, the captive will be liberated, and the prisoner will be set free, and the, the year of the Lord's favor, that day. And then everybody wanted to kill him. They actually drove him out of the synagogue and tried to throw him off a cliff. They didn't do it, um, in case you never read the Gospels before. And so he just walked right through them, because he can do that. So he, he did that, and uh, that launched and inaugurated Jesus' ministry. Here's an important thing to, to just hear this, okay? In Luke chapter 3 through chapter 4, all this takes, everything I just said to you took place. It's all recorded in Luke chapter 3 through chapter 4. But in Luke chapter 3 verse 22, Luke felt like it was necessary to let us know how old Jesus was when he began his ministry. And how old was he? He was about 30 years old. Um, and so he was about 30 years old uh, when he went public with who he was and what he came to do. So then you read Daniel chapter 9, again look at your Bible, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, I told you last week, anointed means Messiah, anointed one, an anointed one, um, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. What does that mean? He was killed. The Messiah king was killed. And, um, and the people of the prince speaking about the same one who was killed, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, it, and shall come with a flood, and to, uh, and to the end there shall be war, desolations, or decree. Just hang on, and I'll get to this in, in, in a little bit. Um, the anointed one shall be cut off. How is God going to make, or how is God going to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness? The anointed one needed to be cut off first. That's what Jesus did at the cross. Um, and, and then it, you know, it goes on to say that in verse 27, if you're tracking here, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Well, half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, what happens there? Well, the dispensationalist futurist view would say, oh, no, that's talking about the Antichrist. Here's what you need to know. And um, I actually, uh, when Galen was preaching on, I think, Revelation or whatever at, at Shine Hills, he actually, he actually said this, which is awesome, because this is the camp uh, where he's at, is the camp I kind of came out of. He said, there is a small group of evangelical Christians in the world that kind of hold to this view. And he recognized that, and he's right. Um, dispensationalism, or the futurist view, was was uh, discovered in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, the traditional view of this passage, 
We're like those, those view number two and view number three that I shared with you at the beginning of my sermon that the church held to for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, um, so I, you know, I'm not going to say that my view is new. I, I think it's probably a hodgepodge between the two, uh, view number two and view number three. But anyway, let's, let's continue on. And he shall make a strong covenant. What is the strong covenant that he makes with the people for half of the week that results in the end of the sacrifice. So, so let's track with me here, ready? So if the, the seventh week is, or the 70th week is seven years, Jesus inaugurated his ministry right around the age of 30. When did Jesus die? If you read the Gospel of John, what you discover is that there were three Passovers. And uh, what that means is that there was about three years in, in Jesus' ministry that led to his crucifixion. Three, three and a half years. And, um, and then he died. And what happened after Jesus died? There was a certain curtain that was torn in two. Remember? I mean, Easter, you know, Good Friday sermons, um, what you read in your Bible. The curtain that was torn in two was in the, Holy of Hol- was in the temple that King Herod built, and the curtain that was torn in two was the curtain that divided the pe- or separated the people, the common people, from the Holy of Holies. It was torn in two. Why was it torn in two? Because as a result of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, there would no longer ever, ever need to be a sacrifice for sins for the people of God. You see where I'm going with this? So, um, so I, it gets better. This is where I get excited. And I, I'm not excited about you know, when I think about the 70 weeks, what I'm excited about is what this points to. And what it points to, what Daniel chapter 9 is all about, is about Jesus and his death for our sins and his remedy for, our, for, for mankind's problem. So remember what I said. Daniel was praying to God because he read what book in the Bible? Jeremiah. It's okay. Uh, Jeremiah. He was reading Jeremiah 25. And um, in Jeremiah chapter 31, which Daniel would have been familiar with, you need to see it. It's going to be on the screen. You need to follow along as I read this. This is the promise that was given to the people of God long before Jesus was born. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, how many times did they break it? A lot, <laughs> right? That they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. That's, like, I think that's Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. He's going to seal his word onto our hearts. I will, put, I will write my, my, uh, my laws on their hearts. And I will, yeah, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is an awesome language. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their what? Their iniquity, and I will remember their sins for what? No more. How long is no more? Ever. <laughs> and what did Daniel say? Like, there would no longer be a sacrifice. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so, continuing on, 
I said this in the, during communion last week. When Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal, and the Passover meal for every generation leading up to Jesus pointed to Jesus, he held up one of the cups. There were multiple cups that were used during the Passover meal. He held up one of the cups, and he said, this is the cup of what? That's poured out for you. And it is the new covenant in my blood. And all the disciples and everybody in that room would have said, oh, did he just make a reference to Jeremiah 31? I think he did. Because he did. Um, it gets better. There's another passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. It's the same promise, just different language. And it says this. In fact, we can read it together. Ready? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will prove you shall dwell in the land that I give you, or give to your father, sorry, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your what? Uncleanliness. That's your sins. Hmm. When Jesus held up the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, it's going to be poured out for all of you, he was saying, I am going to the cross on behalf of you. And what I do on the cross, or what I will do on the cross, is I will shed my blood. And when I shed my blood, that promise in Jeremiah 31 will become your reality. And what did he say after Jesus was buried and rose on the third day and talked to his disciples? He said, I'm going to ascend to heaven, but listen, I want you to stay somewhere. And where did he tell them to stay? Jerusalem. And because why? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. That's the Ezekiel language. Hmm. Yes. So, sorry. I'm, I'm geeking out a little bit. Um, so this is, you can do whatever you want to do with, with Daniel chapter 9. I, like the early church father Jerome, he said, he said it. Like there were nine different views of godly, godly men throughout church history. And um, and I'm holding my understanding of Daniel chapter 9 with an open hand. But what I do know is I know it's all about Jesus. And every person who reads their Bible and believes it knows that this passage is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Um, here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6. This gets, this gets even better. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. What covenant? The new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. This is why, listen, this is why I am so dogmatic about my view of, of what the Bible teaches about salvation, which I think is biblical. And that is, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. If you're a Christian, there is nothing that can reverse your salvation. If you are a true Christian. Because if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you know what happens? God removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. God had, has changed the, the affections of your heart that, have, that has resulted in a, a desire for him and a love for for him. That happened the moment you placed your faith and trust in Jesus. If you do not love God, if you have no interest in following Jesus, but you prayed some little prayer when you're a little kid, you are not a Christian. Uh, you are a Christian. You know that you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. You know that you have salvation for this simple fact that you genuinely and absolutely love God. 
That doesn't mean you stop sinning, but it does mean that you love God and that you want to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're following him perfectly, but you are wanting to follow him. That promise, that new covenant promise, is what theologians call the already not yet. Why do they call it the already not yet? Because some of this, we have, we, if you're a Christian, some of this you're experiencing. But not all of it, man, I have some bad days. There are days that I do stupid stuff. There are days that I sin. And I ask myself, why in the world did I do that? You know, what is wrong with my heart? <laughs> right? Anybody? You there? Like, uh, I'm there. And, um, and the Bible promises God is doing this work in us. He's started the new covenant reality in our lives, in your life and in my life. I love what Jonathan Edwards said. You don't need to know who Jonathan Edwards is. He's cool. He's one of my heroes of the faith. You could be cool too if you read Jonathan Edwards. No, I'm joking. So this is what, this is what I, the quote will not be on the screen, but I did post it on our Facebook page. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Amen? That is all that you contributed. You can do nothing to earn your salvation. What you contributed was your sin. That's what made salvation necessary. Who provided your salvation? Who made it possible? God did. Daniel chapter 9 is all about that, I believe. And uh, it gets even better. So the reason why that temple curtain was torn in two, not only that there would no longer be a need for, for the sacrifice of sins, because that's what would happen in the temple. God's people, they would come in, they would, they, they, would, they would present their lamb. If you were wealthy, you could afford a bull that would be sacrificed. And uh, because of what the scriptures say, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Don't take that up with me. Take it up with God. It's in the Bible. Um, I believe it to be true. But uh, that temple curtain was torn because no longer would there ever be a need for any animal to be sacrificed again because that sacrificial system was not meant to be permanent. It was always meant to point us to someone who was perfect, who would shed his blood on our behalf. And that person was Jesus. That's why that curtain was torn in two. And in Hebrew, the author of Hebrews, in chapter 10, he states this, and he or she, I don't know who wrote it, but um, the words will be on the screen. And every priest stands daily at his, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will what? Put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds for how long? No more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for what? Sin. That's Daniel chapter 9 language. That's New Covenant. Jeremiah 31 language. That's Ezekiel language. That is, that is gospel language, brothers and sisters. Like they're, like when I, when I like cite over and over again, maybe, to, maybe some of you are annoyed by this because I say it so often, um, that Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is for you and it's for me. Man, I believe it to my core. There is therefore no what? Condemnation. For who? Those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because all he had to do was make one sacrifice and that was him. 
himself once and for all for you and for me. Amen? Like, that will get you up in the morning when everything else seems like it's, when, it, when everything else seems like it's dissolving or when it feels like all that you're standing on is just ashes. Of these verses is a promise. And the point of these verses is that God will bring an eventual end to sin and that all who belong to the anointed prince, which is, who is Jesus, who was cut off for our sins, will experience God's redemptive promise, which he will enable his people to live one day fully and completely righteous lives. He will seal his word on their hearts, and he will make his dwelling with his people forever, forever, and ever. Right? Like, so now you can do whatever you want with Daniel chapter 9. You can, you can adopt the futurist view. You could say, oh, well, you know, Pastor Keith kind of makes sense. Um, you can do what, whatever you want as long as you understand it. It's the word of God. But here's what I am convinced of, and this is, this is what I was leading to, and this is, this is what I want to end on. I mean, I have some questions, <laughs> lingering questions for Daniel chapter 9. You can download my manuscript sometime later this week. I have an appendix to my sermon manuscript of some questions that I have about Daniel chapter 9. We don't have time to get into those. But here's what I know from this passage and from the Bible. Our sin is great, and we are deserving of God's full and unrestrained wrath. And that the only way for the mercy that Daniel longed for, for himself and for the people of Israel and for all of mankind to ever become a reality was that the Messiah King would need to be cut off from, from the living by via a, a death by, by, by cross, by crucifixion, for the sins of mankind to be forgiven. Like he would need to die for us to be forgiven. That God did that by sending his son to live the life that we could what? Never live. We could not live that life that he lived. And died the death that who deserved? We deserved it. Therefore, the Bible states that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Let's read this together. Ready? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It was your sin that resulted in him becoming a curse for us. And when I read this language in Daniel chapter 26, I mean Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, when I see language like desolations are decreed, abominations shall, shall come on one who makes desolate. I mean, literally, the, every scholar will tell you that understands Hebrew, which I, 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 I Hebrew was my worst subject, by the way. So, um, it is awkward uh, to translate. It is hard to translate it. But do you know what the word abomination means? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means atrocity. It means disgrace. It means horror. It can mean obscenity. It can mean an outrage. It can mean a crime. So let me ask you this. What was the greatest evil that was ever perpetrated on another human being on planet Earth? The crucifixion. It was the crucifixion. The greatest evil to happen on planet Earth is not what was done by a former Antichrist or a coming Antichrist. The greatest evil to happen on planet Earth in terms of the motive of mankind 
and what man was responsible for doing happened on a hill called Golgotha to the Son of Man who was crucified, who came to pardon us from our sins. Now, the Apostle Peter said to a group of a captive audience on Pentecost, said that, that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but you people were responsible for nailing him to that cross. That the God, in fact, he said in chapter Acts chapter 3, which I have the words on the screen, the God, I think I have the words, yes, I do. The gods of Abraham, the God, or the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the what? The author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. That is an abomination. I think, I mean, this is just my take on this. I think that's the abomination verse 27 is talking about. And here, here's the deal, regardless of where you land on this, that what happened to Jesus on the cross was meant by human beings for evil, and God meant it for good. And here's what I want you to hear from this. God's mercy and his grace is equal to his awesomeness and his greatness. And this is what that means that there is no sin too great nor sinner too far removed that God's mercy cannot reach and his grace cannot transform. That's the point, I think, of Daniel chapter 9 and the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Here's a here's the third thing. is that, um, that God is moving all of history to a redemptive climax that will include all nations when the anointed king, that is Jesus, will reign and rule over the nations. All right, so we looked at a lot of scripture passages. I want you to look at one more with me. In Revelation, it won't be on the screen. You have to turn uh, in your Bible or on your digital device or whatever you're using, or just listen if you don't have any of that, uh, to Revelation chapter 21. Turn to Revelation 21. And I want you to hear Jeremiah 31 in these verses. I want you to hear Ezekiel uh, in these verses. I want you to hear uh, Daniel chapter 9 in these verses. Just listen for it. Revelation chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. That's the new, that's, that's, that's what Daniel's talking about. This anointed uh, place that he's talking about. I saw this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Like Daniel was praying, God, get us back to our physical land. God said, I'm going to do one better for you. I'm going to give you a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, verse 3, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's Jeremiah 31 language. It goes on to say, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
That's what Daniel 9 is, is about. That's the gospel for you and for me. So let me ask you this. I mean, when you think about what is in store for us, what is promised to us, COVID is a joke. Cancer is a joke. The grave is a joke. Like my, my friend uh, Wes uh, died on Father's Day. I watched his memorial service online. I was watching him. Like, the casket's open. Okay, that's, that's interesting. And, but what's, what, what is floating above his casket? It was a balloon. It was tied to, I think, his hand. And on the balloon, it said, get well soon. I'm like, huh, interesting. Um, and so what I, as, I watched, as I watched the memorial service, um, uh, Wes, while battling, battling cancer, he had said, you know what? This cancer, in light of what God has for his people, is a joke. It's a joke. And even though this body fades, and even though it will die, and that's because of what Jesus to cancer, there's a resurrection coming. And that's because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so what is cancer? It's like nothing. God could cure me of this cancer, and he probably, it's looking like he won't. He was interviewed, and, it was, and the interview was released by video. It was released to be shared at his memorial service. He was like Wes gave his own memorial message at his own funeral via video. <laughs> and he just said, you want to know what matters? What matters is what we, what we do for Jesus. What matters is how we live our life for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. And how can we serve our neighbor? By bringing them Jesus. What is the most important thing you can do with your life? Discipling people to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. I'm like, amen. When I saw my friend Mike in the hospital, it was hard. It was hard to see my friend Mike. I mean, this guy's like a mental giant. I asked him to fix our sprinkler system. It was all leaking and pipes were all sticking out and stuff. And I didn't know what to do with it. And and I told Mike, yeah, I was quoted like 200 and some dollars. I forget what the price was. Like, oh, I'm coming over. <laughs> Stopped at Lowell's or Home Depot, came over with a bunch of pipes and a blowtorch. Sat there cross-legged, looked at it, and like, okay. And he started cutting and welding and doing all kinds of stuff. Like, within 30 minutes, he fixed our sprinkler system without taking any measurements. That's Mike. Now he's struggling to get a single sentence out. His brain injury is a joke compared to what God is going to do that this is temporary. Our suffering is temporary. COVID is temporary. Cancer, temporary. Death, for the believer, temporary. God is moving all of history to a redemptive climax where he will make all things new. That's what Daniel 9 is all about. That is what the Bible is all about. Amen? And a guy come up to me after the wedding yesterday, right after the wedding, like right after it. It's weird. I've never had this happen before. Well, several things were different about that wedding. Uh, it's the first time I ever wore an Eagles jersey officiating a wedding, which I was asked to. I was asked to put on a jersey. It was pretty cool. Um, but as, I, as everybody was being dismissed, I had a guy come up to me, and he said, yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to have a ceremony kind of like this, but we're going to do it in, in honor of my... Uh, of my religion. I'm a pagan. And I said, uh, okay. <laughs> That's nice. Um, I hope you got something out of the wedding ceremony. And as he walked away, because my brain doesn't work that fast, I, as he walked away, I said to him, 
I said, you know, I was where you are, where you are at. And God is big enough to reach you where you're at. And he kind of, he looked back and kind of walked out. And then I thought, man, I, I hope I wasn't too standoffish. So I got my business card. I put my cell phone on there and I found him. I said, hey, and he apologized. So he said, I'm sorry if I came off strong. I'm like, no, it's all good. I want to have coffee with you or whatever it is you drink. And, um, and let's talk about your paganism. And I thought about that conversation. Like his paganism, like Odin and the Norse god and all this stuff, has no power to change lives. The only thing that has the power and the ability to change your life is the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And thank you for our nursery workers and children's children, uh, teachers and all the hard work that they put into especially when I go 10 minutes over. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.